We are finishing up a series on the Minor Prophets, and I don't know about you guys, but that little scrunch of, of Bible that are, are like the flyover states, you just, we tend to pass over them when we're finding Scripture, when we're reading something for inspiration. We rarely think of the Minor Prophets to go to, um, but I tell you, if you've been with us through this entire series, you're like me. You've been impressed by how closely what the prophets talk about, how it mirrors our culture and mirrors the issues of the day. Anyone else have found that very interesting? That, that says something about the timelessness of God's Word, I believe. Well, Malachi packs in a lot of stuff. Malachi actually is the best book. I got the best book. I don't know, I don't know how that worked out, but I'm sure I did. It's got the most good stuff in it. Good, chunky, meaty. It's like a stew in there. Just good stuff. I can't wait to open it up, and we begin to go through it bit by bit by bit. But before we do, I just want you to know that uh, when I preach, I require something of the participants. The, you can't just listen. You have to engage. Okay. We're off to a great start. <laughs> Uh, no, Alan knows what to do. He's an old Church of Christ guy, and they, 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 they're not intimidated by anyone or anything, right? Church, they're, they're, st- they're a stalwart bunch. Yeah, you want to cross the Rockies, take a Church of Christ guy with you. Um, they're not that fun, but they are… They're, they're, they're dependable. Um, Baptists, so uh, what do you guys do when, when, you, when you hear something that you like? What, what's the proper response for a Baptist? Amen. Amen. So Baptists know how you do it. Amen. Um, uh, Pentecostals, I don't even have to tell you what to do. You guys know you're going to do it whether I tell you to or not. Um, uh, Presbyterians, any Presbyterians? Yeah, Presbyterians don't even like to acknowledge they're here. Mm, mm. They do the side eyes. Uh, Are we supposed to be here? Do our people know that we're here? (laughs) Presbyterians, you just want to nod your head and say amen. You don't even want to say amen. You just want to go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes, mm-hmm. So I'm gonna, you can do that, but I just want you to go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you hear something that resonates with you in some way, if it makes you glad, mad, or sad, it resonates, I need you guys to respond this morning. Is that, can we do that? Can we do it a little bit better than that? Okay. So uh, Malachi means messenger, and, and uh, you've heard the saying, don't shoot the messenger. Well, we're, Malachi really the saying uh, probably should be, um, don't ignore the messenger, because Malachi has some very important things that God told him to tell the people of Israel. Malachi is writing to uh, some Israelites who have grown just a little casual, a little half-hearted, a little um, sort of, uh, we'll do it if we feel like doing it, sort of worship with God. And God says, uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. This is important to me, and it needs to be important to you. A couple years back, my sister said something that I thought was really intriguing. I never heard this phrase before. She goes, uh, we had to have a little come-to-Jesus meeting at our house last night. Does anyone know what a come-to-Jesus meeting is? Anyone not know what a come-to-Jesus meeting is? Oh, okay, okay. Uh, come-to-Jesus meeting, um, one, you would think with a come-to-Jesus meeting that there's going to be some hymn singing. Blessed assurance, my hope is built, all those sorts of things. Uh, there'll be some prayer time, people give their testimony. There might even be cake or donuts because wherever Jesus is, there should be cake and donuts, I think. <laughs> but you would be wrong because all the come to Jesus meetings I've been invited to, there was a disappointing lack of cake and donuts. 
Instead, there are um, uh, recriminations are passed back and forth, um, an airing of grievances, and then a, a call to action, a call to do something different than what you've been doing in the past. Does this sound familiar to you? Sometimes these meetings go by, as long as you live under my roof, mister. Sometimes they go by, uh-uh, you're not getting away with that. But mostly, because we're Christians, we call them come-to-Jesus meetings. And uh, this morning, Malachi says, come to Jesus. So, like all good come-to-Jesus meetings, it starts like this. I love you deeply. In fact, in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you deeply, says the Lord. Now, when anyone ever starts a conversation with, I love you, but you know, mm, this is not going to go where I want it to go. The other thing is, I don't want to offend you, but it's like, if you don't want to offend me, just stop right there. You don't need to go any further. God says, I have loved you deeply from the very beginning. You know, most parents, we got a little baby up in St. Vincent's right now. He's got all, just a host of problems, and his mom and dad and grandparents are just praying for him. Um, but even with all the things wrong with him, they've still got dreams and visions. You had those for your kids, didn't you? Before those little squeaky eyes opened up, you already knew, well, he's going to be a president, or he's going to be a doctor, or he's going to be a, a football player. He's going to marry the, the, you start praying for their wives, start dreaming dreams for them, and everything goes along swimmingly until they turn about 14, 15, and then all of a sudden, you're screaming at each other between locked bedroom doors. Why do you hate me? Why are you not? Why do you treat me like this? Anyone identify with that story? Again, you just, you just call it out. You just shout it out if you, if you agree with me or you experience something that's the same. The people of Israel say the same thing. They say, how have you loved us deeply? How have you loved us? Really? Malachi 1 and 2. The Lord replies this way. Listen, I chose Jacob instead of Esau. Now, before we get into a deep, long conversation about why God chooses someone or, and, and uh, uh, passes over someone else, it's always good to remind ourselves of, of why God chooses someone. Honestly, I don't know. He chose Jacob, but have you considered Jacob? So, Jacob is, uh, he lied to his father, he cheated his brother, he conned his uncle out of his livestock and half of his estate, he treated his wives unfairly. He showed favoritism to his children. Those are all reasons I would thank God to say, you know what, I think I can do better than Jacob. But God says, no, I love Jacob and I chose Jacob to be a special possession, a special treasure for me. In 1 Corinthians, Paul goes to some great lengths to remind us that in many ways we are like Jacob. Do you remember this passage? He says, we indulged in sin, we worshiped idols, we committed adultery and other sexual sin, we thieved, we were greedy, we were drunkards, we beat up on each other. Paul says, some of you were like that, and you know it. But you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And now, 1 Peter 2, 9. In fact, can we just read that together? You are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for He called you out of the darkness into His wonderful light. You know, God's grace is both um, annoying and irritating as well as amazing. Sometimes God shows favor and we wonder, why are you doing this, God? It's marvelous and maddening, 
It's wonderful and weird and wacky. And the days that we encounter God's grace in those ways are eye-opening days for us. And they call us to something different, to the next step. Well, Malachi goes on to detail three ways in which we as Christians need to get our heads around the idea of God's love. He says this, Malachi 1, 6, 1, yeah, chapter 1, verse 6. He says, a son honors his father and a servant respects his master. And I am your father and I am your master. But where are the honor and respect I deserve? He says, you have despised my name. That's a heavy accusation. Later on in the verse, he goes through three areas where we have despised or dishonored God. He says, you don't treat me right, you don't treat your marriage right, and you don't treat each other right. He starts with himself. He says, you're not treating me the way I deserve. Malachi 1 through 6, you have despised my name by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. Anyone who's a student of the Bible knows that God initiated the temple and sacrifices in a certain way, and they were important to him. He says, I want the first fruits of your crops, and I want the best and unblemished of your livestock. It wasn't that hard, and yet as time went by, people began to slip just a little bit away from those strict demands. And they began to give him sort of the wilted lettuce and the crippled goats. You know, in our own lives, do we give God our first and our best? When it comes time to spending God, do we show up late and check out a little bit early? Do we give him the scraps and the leftovers of our time and affection? Or do we give him what amounts to emotional goodwill donations? When we give God our second best and expect Him to be thrilled with that, we offer defiled sacrifices on His altar. You know, we have a tradition in our family, it's called Second Christmas, and it's like this. As if one Christmas is not enough, we have two. Um, we'll gather at mom and dad's place, and we'll, we do the traditional exchange names and bring gifts, and we, we have a great time unwrapping them and... Um, ooing and aahing over what people got us and thinking to ourselves, how quickly can I return this? Um, then we'll break for a little breakfast, a little coffee, some Danish and donuts. Uh, and then we come back to second Christmas. Now, second Christmas is where the fun is because second Christmas is all about bringing something from our own lives, something that is still useful and good, that has value, to someone, but not necessarily to us. And so I brought books that I've read that I really liked and I would like to pass on to someone. Um, Pam brings, has brought in some uh, curtains for the window and, and uh, people have donated some, have put some tools in the mix, some clothes that their kids have outgrown and maybe someone else would like those. And we wrap them up real nice because it's Christmas after all. We put them under a tree and everyone loves this because we love seeing old things get a new life, except my niece, Samantha. There's a picture of Samantha uh, holding up her driver's license or her permit there. Say hello, Samantha. She is not here this morning, but I will let her know that you said hello to her. <laughs> Samantha hates second Christmas. Ugh, she goes, I don't want your leftovers. I don't want your trash. I don't want your junk. I want new stuff. Like all 
young adults, she doesn't really value vintage like I do. <laughs> so last Christmas, she had brought in something wrapped up in an old grocery bag, all crumpled and sort of wadded up. I think it was a pair of jeans that she found laying on the floor that morning. And she threw them in there, wrapped it up, and came in Christmas, threw it underneath the tree. There, she says, enjoy your trash Christmas. Well, my niece, my other niece was excited. She found some good jeans. She liked in there, didn't you? McKenna, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I love trash Christmas. It's the best Christmas of all. But when it comes to our worship, trash Christmas is not really what God's looking for. He's like Samantha. He goes, I don't want your leftovers. I want, I want the best and the first. So uh, there's a, good, a great story about, from David's life uh, that sort of ties this point in, and, and maybe you're familiar with it. David has an amazing encounter with God in, of all places, a threshing floor. And, and the encounter is such that David says, I want to memorialize this. I want to build an altar. I want to build a monument to God here so that, so that I don't forget this moment and anyone who comes here will see and remember this moment as well. So he goes to the, the guy who owns the, the plot, the, the, the threshing floor. His name is Aruna. And he says, Aruna, I, I, I need to buy this, uh, this property to build a monument. And Aruna says, hey, wait, you're the king. I won't take money from you. What if I just, what if I just give this to you? And uh, David says something very important in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verses 24 and 25. David says to Arena, no, I insist on buying it for the full price. I will not take what is yours and offer it to the Lord as if it were mine. I will not present burnt offerings that have cost me nothing. That's a great, that's a great lesson on worship right there, isn't it? We don't offer to God something that cost us nothing. If your worship has grown stale and lackluster, if you're a little bored and cold and indifferent to God's Word, then perhaps the problem is that you are not bringing your best and first to the occasion, but you're giving God leftovers of your time and your affection. The second thing that God says to them is, hey kids, you're, you're not treating marriage the way you need to treat it. Now, I feel a little awkward talking about marriage. I'm not married. So today, I am just speaking what Malachi says. If you've got a problem with it, you take it up with Malachi when you get to heaven, you can sort it all out there. <laughs> Malachi says this. He says, you've married women who don't even believe in me, and you say that I'm first in your life. He goes, that doesn't make sense. And secondly, he says, you say that I'm first in your life, and you're not even faithful to your spouse. Well, that, what does that say about your relationship with me? And then he says, and don't get me started on divorce. He says, I hate divorce. Now, I've had countless conversations with people about this, people who have gone through a divorce. God hates divorce. What does that say about me? Well, first of all, let me tell you right up front, God loves you. He hates divorce. Can we just make that real clear? God loves you. He hates divorce. And here's why he hates it. In fact, I don't have to tell you why he hates it. If you talk to someone who's gone through a divorce, or a child whose parents got divorced, or, or even someone who initiated a divorce, they will say, listen, between getting all my teeth pulled and going through a divorce, I would rather lose all my teeth than do that again. It exacts a horrible emotional, spiritual, financial, and even physical toll 
on a person who experiences it or a family member who experiences it. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, he describes it like this. He tells this story. It's sort of a metaphor. Um, he says, divorce is like this. Divorce is like having a best friend since elementary school. And you guys hang out together. You go hiking together. You play games together. You grow up together. You know each other inside and out. And one day you're walking down the street, and your friend all of a sudden turns on you and begins to beat you senseless. So you're just a bloody pulp laying there on the sidewalk, barely breathing. And then he robs you. He takes your clothes, the, the torn and bloody coat you've got, and he walks down the street bragging about what he's done. Divorce is a violent betrayal of trust. And those who have gone through it know exactly what that person laying there on the ground, feeling bloody and beat up, feels like. That's why God hates divorce. Here at Sherwood Oaks, we believe in marriage. We have invested in training. We've invested in tools and resources for your marriage. So even if you've got a great marriage, you should be taking advantage of these great resources to make it even better. But we also know that life happens. And sometimes life happens to us whether we want it to or not. Tom's talked about divorce and uh, legitimate biblical reasons for divorce. So if you're feeling anxious or if the word divorce sort of causes turmoil in your heart, understand this. God loves you. We love you, and, and God doesn't, God's not here to cast um, guilt and shame on you. He says, listen, I've redeemed you from that, and I want you to walk in a new life. But if you have questions, Alan is available to talk to anytime, right? <laughs> just, just call Alan. Sharon loves it when he's called away in the middle of the night to, to answer anxious phone calls. So, so no, seriously, if you've, got, if you've got anxious thoughts about that, we would love to talk you through it. But know this, here's the big thing. When God says, I have loved you deeply, he means it. Amen? You're going to get a bigger amen than that? I mean, that's a big one. Okay, here's the third way. He says, he says you've broken faith with me. You've not honored me. And this third way, you, you treat each other badly. You treat me bad. You treat marriage badly. And you treat each other badly. He says, here's the three areas. Malachi 3, um, 3, 5. I'm skipping a lot, guys, up there. I'm sorry. I will have to buy them. I'll get some free Chick-fil-A coupons for them. <laughs> Malachi, it, won't, it costs me nothing. I'm sorry, guys. I will take you to Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Malachi 3.5 uh, says this. You cheat employees of their wages, you oppress widows and orphans, and you deprive the foreigners living among you of justice. Now, if you're an employer here, you know that showing honor and respect to your employees is a great way to build your own business. You treat your employees bad, and they find other work, and your business suffers. It makes absolute sense to me that you would treat people well, and God says, yet, yet you're not. Get that right. Get, get the, get the boss-employee relationship fixed. Don't abuse and, and um, don't abuse your authority. He says, number two, widows and orphans. You know, despite the culture that we live in, widows, uh, the very elderly and the very young, are still probably the most vulnerable in our society. Um, the opposite of oppress, because God accused them of oppressing widows and orphans, the opposite of oppress is to lift up. How can you lift up and encourage widows? How can you lift up and encourage orphans? Well, this afternoon, we're, I'm going to be down at um, 
uh, Johnston Christian Village down in Lawrence County. It's an, it's an old folks uh, residence. Um, I don't even think they call them that anymore, but it's an assisted living place. And we'll go down and we'll do some prayer time. We'll, we'll sing some songs together. We'll take communion. We'll share. Um, and we will, in general, encourage each other. You're welcome to join me. I, would, I, I love all comers. But the better thing to do might for you to think, listen, I know someone that can use an encouraging visit. I know someone that I could call and just lift up this afternoon or this evening. Take advantage of this time to do it now because they will not be with us always. The second thing is that we oppress orphans. Now, how do we do that? Well, in our church, we have lots of folks who, who have adopted or who foster children. You guys are amazing, and we want to bless you. I know your kids bless you, but we want to bless you as well and say thank you very much. If you can't do that, is there a way that you can encourage someone who does? Can you pray for them? Can you offer some babysitting services periodically? Maybe even financially. I tell you, adopting is not cheap. And if you know someone who wants to do it or is praying about it, you might encourage say, listen, I would like to partner with you and help you do this. Here at Sherwood Oaks, be keeping your ears open because we're starting, uh, looking at starting a ministry with, uh, that other churches are doing called Safe Families. And it's a way to take children who are uh, just experiencing family issues, and before they get placed in the system, there's a place for them just to be safe and hang out while mom and dad get issues sorted out. Be praying for that and be praying how you can be a part of what's happening there. And then this week, I don't know about you, but I've been affected by the news regarding babies. But rather than rail against the storm, perhaps we can offer shelter for those who are in the middle of it. Perhaps we can uh, donate and volunteer with our crisis pregnancy center Right now, they're looking to buy a van to just help patients and, and mothers get to, to doctor's visits and other things like that. And we can be a part of helping uh, fulfill that goal and changing the lives of young moms and young kids. As you have it in your power, do good and speak up for the defenseless. You know, one of the th last things Malachi says in his book is that, that at the end, when God sends his servant, the hearts of the children will be turned towards their parents and the hearts of parents will be turned towards their children. I've not seen it yet. I've not seen it yet. But I think that's a good thing to pray when you pray for um, widows and orphans. And then the third thing, he says, you don't treat the foreigners living among you correctly. You're robbing them of justice. Well, I don't, I don't, know, I don't, I don't know how that works. But I do know this, that, that here in Bloomington, we work beside internationals. We go to school with internationals. Um, perhaps you're served by a meal by an international. You may be worshiping beside an international right now. The best way to be a presence in their life, and as Malachi says, to be some part of um, this, this concept of justice for them, is to just begin by being friends with them. Do you know someone from another country? I challenge you to make a friend, to get to know someone. In fact, if you look around right now, you might see a few that you think, hmm, maybe they're internationals. Sometimes they're not. They just look different than you. That's all right. That's all right. If someone approaches you internationals or someone who looks international and you're not international, just be gracious. Say, thank you very much. I was born here in the U.S., but I love to make new friends. That's all you got to do. <laughs> love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus says, and that's what Malachi says too. Listen. Whether it's someone you work with, someone you work for, 
someone older than you or someone much, much younger than you, someone that looks like you or someone who doesn't look like you, they're our neighbor. Who is our neighbor, Jesus said? Anyone that we come in contact with, they may not be lying bleeding on the side of the, side of the road like that, uh, like that young man who was helped by the Samaritan. But, but regardless, anyone we cross paths with is our, is our neighbor. And so, uh, so God says, be kind to them. Love them as yourself. Our relationships with each other in many ways reflect our relationship with God. And so God says, this is really easy. Let's break it down. Here's what I'm, I'm asking of you. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. You guys might remember this. Let's read this together. The Lord has told you what is good, and this is what He requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You see, God uses the relationships, the interactions that we have with each other to refine us and sharpen us and soften us so that we look more and more like Him. In uh, Malachi 3.3, God says, I will sit and judge as a refiner of silver, watching closely as the dross is burned away. We all have dross in our lives. And God uses people to get rid of that or to bring it to the surface. So a a lady, the story is told, a lady read this verse and thought, what is that? I'd like to know more about that. So she goes to visit a silversmith. And uh, he invites her to watch him as he does this. And so she sits down and he takes the silver and he puts it in the very center of the fire where the heat is the hottest so as to burn off all the impurities. She asks him, do you have to sit here the entire time? He says, yeah, 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 I can't leave because even if I leave the silver on for just a fraction of a second too long, it's ruined. The woman was silent for a moment and then she asked the silversmith, well, then how do you know when the silver is fully refined? And he smiled and answered, when I can see my reflection in it. Well, this morning, relationships are the key point for God. All the fruits of the Spirit, all the spiritual gifts, they all only matter when we're in relationship with each other. So think about those people, people you're married to, people you work with, people you you study beside or uh, worship beside. And give God thanks for them. How can you love them as you love yourself? Malachi chapter 3 verse 7. He says this, Now return to me and I will return to you. But what do you mean? What do you mean return to you? We've been sitting here the whole time. What does that even mean? God says, returning to me is the same as trusting me. We're going to give this morning. And I'm going to trot out a verse from Malachi that's been trotted out many, many times before. You will almost be able to recite it by memory. Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Malachi says this, or God says this through Malachi, You have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. So bring all the tithes and offerings into the storehouse so there will be enough in my temple. And if you do, says the Lord Almighty, I will open the windows of heaven I will pour out a blessing so great that you won't have enough room for it. Try it, he says. Let me prove it to you. Now, the tithe Malachi is talking about here is a grain offering. And they would bring 10% of their grain crop to the temple of God. In the temple, there were great storerooms. At one point in time, they said there was enough grain in the storehouses of God 
to feed 250,000 people, half a million people, or a quarter of a million people, for several years. That's a lot of grain. There was a reason for that, because when times got hard, there would be resources there. God had planned ahead. He knew that His people would need taken care of. Now, in the early church, they didn't worry too much about a tithe. Instead, they focused on need. When we see a need, how can we supply and provide for it? So you read about people selling their homes, selling their land, selling other property, and giving it to the church so that those fellow Christians, those fellow believers, would not be in need or not be in want. And here's some things that I think are important to pay attention to. In Malachi 3, verse 10, he says, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have room to take it in. The storehouses in the temple will not be big enough. One of the things I notice about this is that when we trust God, He notices and He responds. Malachi 3.12 says this, Then all the nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight. This is important. When we trust God, others notice. He says this, A day of judgment is coming. Do not lose hope. Do not give up because I am still on my throne. I still watch and see what is happening, and I will take care of the arrogant and the wicked. But as for you, those who fear my name, those who believe because I said it, it will happen. Here's my promise to you. Malachi 4, verse 2. For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in His wings, and you will go free, leaping like calves let out to pasture. Anyone grow up near a farm? I love that image. Those young spring calves go frolic around just acting like they have no care in the world. And God says, if you belong to me, that's exactly how you should approach life. Green grass, blue skies, fluffy clouds. The world is your oyster when we belong to God.